0: You know, whenever Jennifer and I uh, go down to New Orleans, periodically, we like to go visit New Orleans, and we make it a point now, almost every time, to go to the World War II Museum. I've learned so much walking through that place. Uh, One of the most fascinating things to me is is, uh, understanding how we got into the war to begin with. Of course, there was Pearl Harbor. We all know that. We, We had war declared upon us by the Japanese, and then a few days later, Nazi Germany. But at the very outset of our involvement... In World War II, the initial plan was to launch a full-scale attack in northern Europe, in the north of France, which we eventually did on D-Day. But at the very beginning, in in, in, the early parts of 1942, we're ready to punch back and punch hard against Hitler's army. But our president, FDR, President Roosevelt, met with Winston Churchill, and Churchill said, do not go to northern Europe first. And there was a little bit of contention as to which was the right plan of action. But Churchill said, you're not ready yet to fight the teeth of Hitler's army where they're strongest. We need to go into North Africa first. And so FDR and, and Churchill kind of came to this stunning agreement that the U.S. would begin in North Africa and then eventually come up through the south, north into Sicily and Italy, what Churchill called the the soft underbelly of Europe. And only then would we have the foothold we needed to launch a greater attack, which of course, that was the right plan. It was a uh, a contentious plan that some of the military advisors disagreed with initially, but that's what ultimately led the allies to victory. It was a slow plan. It was less impressive to start, but it's what gave us the ability to ultimately conquer Hitler's uh, conquest. Uh, it's pretty amazing to consider how unseen, otherwise unknown meetings like that can change the course of world history. Well, we actually get another one of those today. In John chapter 11, we kind of get to be flies on the wall of a closed-door strategy meeting between the religious leaders in Israel. Now, that doesn't sound terribly exciting, I'm sure, for a sermon, but this is such an important piece of the puzzle when we consider the ministry of Jesus, because y'all, if you've been with us, or if you're familiar with John chapter 11, something cataclysmic has just occurred. Jesus's most amazing miracle, the raising of the dead, has just taken place. And it happened in obscurity in a little town called Bethany, but you can't keep something like that secret for very long. Bethany was close to Jerusalem, And what Jesus has just accomplished in raising his friend Lazarus from the dead has now set in place what the narrative is ultimately going to produce, right? Which is Jesus going into Jerusalem one final time and being nailed to the cross. And so at the time when Jesus's divine nature and glory has been most clearly seen in raising the dead, this is now the breaking point for the Jewish leaders, Something has to be done about this man, all right? And so today we're going to see the plan hatch. We're going to see the closed-door meeting that served as the final straw, that last miracle Jesus has just produced. War must be declared. Something's got to be done, all right? And so this is the breaking point. Remember, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead with with a word and says, unbind him and let him go. The very next verse now shows us how things were set in motion. Look at John 11, verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what Jesus had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now, real quickly here. So we've got people present at the funeral. They see Jesus raise Lazarus and they put their faith in Jesus. But others who witnessed the very same miracle turn and make a beeline back to Jerusalem to tell the Pharisees about it. And y'all, it's hard for us not to read in some malicious intent with all of that. Everybody knew the Pharisees hated Jesus. And so there were some people who, rather than celebrate, rather than believe, they go and rat Jesus out to the folks in charge. And now we see the outcome in verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Uh, This council is not called by name here, but this is the Sanhedrin, which was a council of 70 men. This was the ruling body among the Jewish people, kind of like the Supreme Court. Or in this case, we might even think about it a little bit like Roosevelt and Churchill with all of their advisors sitting around the table in the war room. Now, y'all, th- this is not the standing Monday meeting where they drink coffee and talk college football, okay? This is an emergency meeting. There is only one item on the agenda here. What are we going to do about Jesus? But I, I hope we see the obvious tension even among these men who are his enemies. There's a tension here. You see it in verse 47? A clear acknowledgment of fact, this man is performing many signs. These men are past the point of denying Jesus' power. There's no denying it. And so even when the report comes in that Jesus has raised a dead man, you notice right here there's no disputing it. The council doesn't convene to debate whether they think it's possible for Jesus to have done such a thing. It doesn't seem that they doubt it at all. They know that he is a man of extraordinary power and wisdom and goodness. They know it. But then there's this maddening thing that continues to rear its head. We see this refusal, not only to believe in Jesus, but an insistence that the council has on denying him in an effort to destroy him. Notice what their real concerns are. In verse 48, what are they really worried about? If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The people are increasingly looking to Jesus and not to us. That was their problem. And so on one hand, Jesus is a threat to their power structure, We like being in charge. These are the men who sat on the throne of religious authority right there in Jerusalem, and it's becoming more and more apparent that Jesus is threatening to unseat them. What's going to become of us if Jesus gets too popular? But there's an even greater threat. We see it. If the Romans catch wind of this, then we're really in trouble. I mean, what happens if the Roman government hears about a new ruler who has risen up among the Jews, somebody who actually claims to be Lord. Now, y'all, the Romans believed that Caesar was Lord and Caesar alone. So what's going to happen if they find out that somebody else from among this little band of Jews is claiming to be Lord instead? What's going to happen to the Sanhedrin? Y'all, the fear is real. If Jesus keeps making a name for himself... Sooner or later, the Romans are going to assume a rebellion, and they're going to step in and squash us. They're going to take away our place, that is the temple, and our nation. We're going to lose everything. Now, maybe those fears are legitimate. I mean, certainly, you know, the Romans were brutal. The Romans didn't take kindly to any uprising. Maybe there is something to their fears. But y'all, at the end of the day, what troubles this council, these are the most religious men around. These are the men who, if if anybody loves and treasures the Lord, it would be them. But at the end of the day, we see their great concern is with their own self-preservation. More than anything else, they're concerned about what's going to happen to us. Jesus is a threat to what we have going on, to what we value, to who we are. And y'all, if we can just take a moment to kind of translate this uh, into our own lives. Um, The truth is that for every single person, every single one of us, Jesus poses a threat to us too. Jesus is a threat to us. And I mean that in the best possible way. I really do. That Jesus, when he enters into a person's life, if if you and I, if we're going to trust and follow him then by definition of what it means to follow Jesus, he's going to threaten some of the things that we most treasure. And you can fill in your own blanks on this. If if, if we treasure wealth and success and personal ambition, if we treasure a particular lifestyle choice, if we treasure our own political convictions, maybe it's just, you know, I just want to live a a nice, comfortable, risk-free existence. That's all I really want you you can fill in your own blanks as to what you value in this life, but whatever it is that we treasure the most, Jesus becomes an immediate threat to us because Jesus really is Lord. And Lord means Lord of all. Jesus really is the center of the universe, the creator of all things, and therefore we owe our lives to him. He belongs as the greatest treasure. That's a, y'all, that is a statement of objective fact. If Jesus exists at all, then he exists as the center of all, not me and not my temporary pursuits and desires. Jesus is the greatest treasure of not only the universe, but also of the human heart. And so, y'all, as Christians, we actually can say this with great joy. Every other treasure is empty apart from Jesus. That's not something we lament, but it's something we celebrate because we can recognize if we understand eternity given the small, tiny little scope of this present life and present world, what good is it to devote our lives to something that's going to expire when we die anyway? What ultimate good would it be? What good is it to seek self-preservation when the God of the universe has offered to us eternal, abundant life in His Son. Something far greater than anything we can hold in our hands or produce through our own efforts. Y'all, the men on this council were obsessed with retaining their own power when in reality they had no power to begin with. They had only a temporary, fleeting human kind of power that in the end comes to nothing. They were grasping at the air and so desperate to hold on to it that Jesus became threat number one, enemy number one to their way of life. And y'all, I want to say this morning, thanks be to God who threatens any lesser ambitions in our lives so that we might come to him and find him to be the greatest treasure of all. For some of us, that's a difficult process because there's so much we value that in themselves are not bad. We value many good things, but nothing is as good, nothing is as surpassing in value as knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so I just just forgive the rabbit trail for a moment, but Jesus Christ will not share priority or space with any lesser worldly thing. He belongs in the center. And if we want to know what life really is, then we'll be glad to have him right there where he belongs. Now, as we find our way back into this story, these men are threatened, and they're concerned about what they ought to do about it. The council is at a loss. And that's when the big dog begins to bark. That's when the man who has sat quietly long enough finally steps in. Look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. So when the high priest speaks, the whole room goes silent, right? Caiaphas is talking and he is done with all the hand wringing and the nervousness. You guys don't know what you're talking about, he says. Don't you know the quickest, easiest, most obvious way to solve this problem? It's expedient for you that one man die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. Which is to say, let's just make Jesus our scapegoat here. It's either us or him. And if the, it's, it's actually quite a brilliant plan, right? Because think about, Jesus has got some followers at this point, but the uproar among his followers, if we kill him, is much more manageable than the uproar of the Romans if they decide to step in. We have much more a fighting chance in that case. And so what what Caiaphas is saying is, y'all, the choice is clear. And this is a plan that makes perfect political sense, even though it's got a little mafia flavor to it, right? But it makes perfect political sense that we would take Jesus out in order to preserve our nation and our way of life. It's either him or us. But y'all, at a deeper level, Caiaphas doesn't realize what he's really saying. And I want us to take another look, beginning in verse 50, but we're going to connect it now to the larger paragraph. Look in verse 50 again. You don't take into account, Caiaphas says, that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Now, y'all, this is utterly fascinating to me. The high priest, John tells us, without realizing it, becomes God's mouthpiece, God's prophet, declaring God's purpose in sending Jesus to the cross. He says it. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke on, on a little term that I gave us called God's peculiar providence, how God sees to it that things happen in a certain way in accordance with His greater purposes and His glory, right? And y'all, sake's alive. Look, I mean, this is an amazing example of a man speaking something and yet God overriding his words and filling them with a purpose that he never intended. You know, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, they're stirred up at this point in a jealous rage. They convince themselves that by putting Jesus to death, we can save ourselves, we can preserve our positions. But in their quest to fight against Jesus, they actually end up serving his divine purpose. In their quest to destroy him, they actually end up serving his purpose without knowing it. There's a place in Acts chapter 4 where this is spelled out really wonderfully. When This is after the resurrection when the disciples of Jesus are they're praising God. They're speaking to God about all that's taken place. And listen to what they say, Acts 4.27. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Which is to say, everybody who had a hand in murdering Jesus. Achieved the exact opposite of what they intended. Because God had super intended something beyond their own category, something they couldn't conceive. In their minds, the death of Jesus would be Jesus' failure and their great victory, but in the end, it becomes God's ultimate victory. Pre-planned, predetermined by God to bring his grace into the world once and for all. And so, y'all, Caiaphas is perhaps the greatest accidental prophet there ever was because in his malice against Jesus, he's actually declaring something glorious. Unbeknownst to him, he's telling us what God is about to do through his son Jesus. He prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, y'all, all this is is an echo of something Jesus told us in the last chapter. Back in chapter 10, Jesus spoke of himself. He said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And I have other sheep also who are not of this fold, not just from among the Jews, but I must bring them also to make them into one flock with one shepherd. And what that means and what Caiaphas is saying without realizing it is this, that both Jews and Gentiles, those who make up the entire world, may now be saved through the death of Christ. What happened there in Jerusalem now extends beyond Jerusalem to all the corners of the earth so that every tongue and tribe and nation may hear the gospel, and people from all walks of life may receive Christ. Y'all, that means that what happened in Jerusalem now finds its home in Jackson, a place that didn't exist at the time. That what happens in Jerusalem and Jackson also happens in places like Cameroon and Ghana and Pakistan and Turkey and Paris Everywhere where Harvest Church has partnership, sister churches who today are worshiping the same Jesus that we are. Because Jesus did not die for the nation only, but for all the children of God scattered abroad. We are saved by faith in Him, no matter who we are or where we are. Isn't that amazing? You all know, here in John 11, we've got, we've got 70 men, smartest, most religious of the bunch, Right? And they're basically in the war room plotting against Jesus. What they did now, even though God superintended all of it, what they did was conscious and it was evil and they were responsible for their scheme, right? But nobody out schemes God. Nobody makes a fool out of God. In their desire to rid the world of Jesus, they are actually working within his plan to save the world. In their effort to rid the world of Jesus, they're actually participating in His plan to save the world. And so, y'all, at this point, as we now as we finish out chapter 11 and move into chapter 12, we can kind of characterize this as the beginning of the end. I mean, the, the, the raising of Lazarus is the breaking point, and here from from now on out, uh, Jesus is a marked man, a wanted man. And so, what we'll see from basically from chapter 12 on through chapter 21 is all the chess pieces are set. I've never played chess, by the way, but that's a statement. That's a thing they say, right? The chess pieces are on the board, all right. And now Jesus is heading to his uh, his destiny. And so, look, look with me now at how chapter 11 ends. These are not frivolous details by any means, by any means. But we see the setup here, verse 54. Therefore, because of this plot, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Y'all, the Passover is near. Jesus is somewhere outside Jerusalem waiting for his triumphal entry. This is his final Passover. It's right about to begin. He's going to make his way into the great city one last time where his ministry is going to be fulfilled. And so the council is out for blood. They've made it official. If anyone sees this man, you let us know because we're about to take care of him for good. And y'all, this time they're going to succeed. Whereas before they picked up stones to stone him, but John says it was not yet his hour and therefore they weren't successful. But right here, they're, they're going to get what they wanted, but they're not going to get what they hoped because the blood of Jesus that will be shed on the cross is what's going to make for the salvation of the world. His blood is not his defeat, but it's our victory. And y'all, as we, as we close here today, I, I try to bring this up periodically. Maybe we'll take a caution here before we go. Anytime I read a scripture like this, I come away feeling very self-righteous because we're reading about the bad guys, the Pharisees, the scribes, Caiaphas. How dare these men come to such horrible, evil conclusions about Jesus. Look at their hearts in the matter. Rather than believing in God's Son, they want to put him to death. How could they? And I come out smelling like a rose, I feel like, right? I I would never do that. I would never be like these guys. But y'all, for one, we should never ever walk out of worship feeling proud of ourselves or disdainful toward others. I hope we never walk out of these doors feeling that way. That's not right. But y'all, if we ask the question, okay, Jesus has enemies, they're acting corruptly, yes. But why exactly was it predestined for Jesus to go to the cross? Why was it always in the eternal mind and plan of God to do it this way? The answer is not that Jesus had a great run, but he just ran up against a power too great for him to contend with. The Sanhedrin was too clever, too mighty in the end. No. No. The cross was predestined because you and I, truly you and I, were so far gone, so deep in sin, so utterly lost, that only the Son of God on a cross, paying the penalty for our sins, could solve our sin debt, could bring us life rather than death. Only something that radical and that wonderful could save sinners. And so, y'all, we've read already today in John 11 about the enemies of Jesus, and it's obvious that they were his enemies, but the truth is, right where we sit, all of us have at one time been at enmity with God. All of us have sinned, we've rebelled, and in some very real and deep sense, we've all had a hand in putting Jesus on the cross. If he came to die for the sins of of the world, which includes yours and mine, that he went to the cross in part because of what we did. And as hard as that may be to hear, as abrasive as that may feel to our pride, that's what makes the good news so good. Listen to what Romans chapter 5 tells us. The Apostle Paul, one of my favorite scriptures, listen to how this comes together. God's love and our sin. Which one's going to win out? Romans 5, verse 8. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. God loves His enemies enough to give His own Son for us. When God considered His enemies a world at enmity with Him, Rather than turning his back, he spread out his arms to be nailed down for us. So that even God's enemies might become his children, his dear children, by faith in his son Jesus. And that's why even those who once were his enemies, that includes me, we can now joyfully sing together how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking this morning for all of us that you will press this truth very deeply down into the deepest place of our hearts. Let us have no surface level faith, no no casual belief in Jesus, but at the deepest place, help us to see and know and trust and celebrate that while we were enemies, Jesus' blood was shed for us. That we might be saved by His life forever. And Father, I pray that You would help us to see this. That means no matter what we've done, no matter our, our schemes to avoid You or to rebel against You, no matter how far we've fallen, no matter how many regrets are piled up in our lives, not one single Barrier remains. No sin stands in our way. If we have trusted in Jesus Christ and his blood shed for us, for our forgiveness, we are yours entirely. We are saved. Father, I pray that we would not pridefully look down on the Pharisees today but that we might be willing even to see ourselves among them. Because so often I'm, I'm concerned more about myself um, and my own ambitions than I am with following Jesus. And Father, I pray this morning that you will will so uh, move upon my heart and our hearts that no, no ambition, no matter how good, would surpass what Jesus Christ is to us, who he is, all that he's done, all that he's called us to. Father, let it be singular. Let it be ultimate. the privilege of knowing him and walking with him by faith. And Father, would you encourage us today in this? In a darkened world, full of chaos, full of war, full of madness of all sorts, no one out schemes you. No one has the upper hand on you everything you have determined to accomplish is as good as done and we can see it at the cross. No scheme of man could lay a hand on Jesus. Only what you had already decided to do. And so, Father, even as we struggle um, to live in a world that is Disappointing at the least and disillusioning at the worst. Everything is in your hands even right now. Jesus Christ is on his throne right now. Help us to be a people who are confident in him. That the very worst thing in the world that could have happened, your son being unjustly murdered, was actually the very best thing that ever happened. And it's the only reason we're here right now. Father, thank you that you can do anything. Nothing is impossible for you, even bringing salvation um, to people like us. Let us be so confident and so joyful, knowing, Lord, that you are that powerful and that good. We love you. We thank you. In the awesome name of Jesus Christ. Amen.